Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. My guest today is Tom Pyre, longtime comics writer and editor. In the coming hour, we will discuss his Ahoy Comics hashtag danger, high heaven, and the wrong earth, the way heroes are perceived in different eras, the birth of Vertigo Comics, his acclaimed but underknown series Our Man, a strange and little-known proposal to revise Superman, the late 90s version of Magnus Robot Fighter, future plans for Ahoy Comics, a classic issue of Jimmy Olsen, and much, much more. This fascinating hour of behind-the-scenes comics history begins right after this ad. Okay. Tom Pyre, uh, welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. Thank you, Jason. How are you doing? I am great. Uh, you are working on material that just really sparks uh, a lot of pleasure in me. Um, between okay. hashtag danger and the wrong earth and high heaven, are you doing some um, really interesting work th through Ahoy Comics? It's obviously a labor of love for you. It really is. It really is. Uh, we uh, try to make our comics funny on some level. That's really the only Ahoy House style. And uh, we uh, have pretty self-contained series. Like, you don't have to read one to get the other. And I love both of those things. Um, uh, one of the, it, it could get frustrating sometimes working for the big two when you have to cut your story short because of a crossover or, or some other consideration that sort of uh, would keep you from being funny or entertaining. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, you had to go through that a few times in your career. We will uh, probably get to that a little later on. Uh, so the Hashtag Danger collection, start with that. I think that just recently came out. And that book to me was kind of a stealth book, especially with the, um, with the Chris Giarusso art. It looks just very light and fun, and it is but also has kind of a bite to it. Yeah, they're, it's, a, it's a series about uh, three very unpleasant characters and their uh, half-hearted attempts to get along with each other. And um, it's, it starts with a, it's sort of like those uh, team books that they used to have where people didn't have superpowers, like, like uh, uh, Challenges of the Unknown and Sea Devils. Maybe a little bit of Fantastic Four thrown in, but they're like science adventurers. And the uh, they have an owner, uh, Desi Danger. She's one of the trio. And she wants to be seen and regarded as a great science adventurer, but she doesn't know the first thing about really doing it or isn't really that interested in doing it. She's interested in, you know, the... the uh, Twitter account for it and the uh, press conferences and, and the praise mm -hmm. and not much else. So she employs these two specialists, which is the smartest thing she ever did. There is Einstein, who's um, a super comic book genius. He knows like comic book science like nobody else does. So all the work tends to fall to him and he's pretty bitter about it. And then there's um, Sugar Ray Huang, who's... Um, the muscle of the group she's she can just when when it's time for violence she can deliver it and she's basically just there for the money so they're all there for different reasons and i always describe it as um two pages of awesome epic scientific adventuring followed by 18 pages of them just being complete jerks to each other <laughs> Yeah, that definitely gives the book its spice. And there's so much kind of wackiness in there. You have this adorably cute alien creature, and mm -hmm. it shits everywhere, which yes. works on one level. But then, uh, uh, oh my god, what's her name now? Uh, Sugar Ray e eats the shit, and it's like the greatest thing she's ever eaten. And then she falls in a coma, and she dies, and then she comes back. It's like, you just never know what's going to happen. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, part of not knowing <laughs> what's going to happen is, like, the the point of it isn't really the plot ever. <laughs> so it's kind of easy to write in that way. You can just do anything as long as it's funny. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I like Simpsons plotting in a way. But Oh, yeah, uh, which you did plenty of, right? Yeah, I did do some of that. and um, But I have to put in a word about Chris Jeruso. His art in this is so good. He really... Um, He's got, you know, he does kids' books and he draws in a very cartoony style, but the stuff is so sophisticated if you look at it hard. He gave those characters so much humanity that I didn't supply. And um, the acting was always spot on. The, uh, uh, the tech designs. And, and there's a scene where um, they've gone out on a mission and they set out the villain trap because they're being invaded by a lot of villains. So they come back. And it's like full, and there's like arms falling out of it and stuff, and severed head. And, uh, a lot of villains attacked in their absence, and the trap got filled up. And Einstein has to clean it. But Chris drew this panel where you can just pick out ten villains, fifteen villains, and know exactly what kind of villain they are, which cliche they are. There's the monster one, and the and the aquatic one, and the mysterious supernatural one and you can just tell by their sleeves he's so good it's just such a fun series um what i loved about it is it just all felt coll- together collected in graphic novel it's got the forward moving plot but everything just kind of seems to happen randomly too and it all flows out of the characters so it feels a little bit like real life where just stuff happens and there's also like an impact to everything yeah thank you Thank you. It's, I really, that's one of my uh, best experiences writing. I had, I love those characters and I had a lot of fun with them. And, and then the uh, whole bit with the twist on the uh, Yeti, I thought was great too. It's a lot thank of you. fun. Thank you. We did a page in there that's an homage to a Superman page. I don't know if you caught it. The first sand creature appearance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's got that sort of like um, final caption where the Eddie's going off into the distance and the lettering unaccountably turns really sloppy, like it did on that Superman page, if you remember. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, uh, I love uh, I just, you know, I love, I love the comic books I grew up reading, not because they're better, but because that was a time when I was most impressionable. Yeah. I always go back to them. Well, it's funny. It really does shape the way you see not just comics, but the world in a way. It's the stuff that really affected you when you were young. It really does. It affected, I mean, Superman affected my politics even. I mean, it was really seminal in just sort of figuring out who I was going to be. I mean, he was such a, I mean, he was such a high bar to aspire to. I didn't quite make it. (laughs) <laughs> uh well yeah it's an impossibly high bar but also we're living in a pretty messed up world uh we really are we really are you know he always he had tremendous power and he never used it to serve his own interests it was always to serve the interests of people who needed it and uh i always i grew up sort of holding america to that standard and it never lived up to it <laughs> No, <laughs> it's no no more true than it is right now, exactly. where our, our conception of America is just so fucked up. Um, I guess it's maybe realer than than it ever was. I mean, we don't have any illusions right now, do we? Well, what we want to aspire to, and what we want, and what we really live in, are two completely different things. They're very and, different. Um, we just see that played out every day, and. Yeah. You know, if you think about the Superman comics, it's such a clear difference between good and evil, and yet so many people seem to be attracted to the evil side. They really do. They really do. I I always say the um, just to take a brief detour into it, since we're doing it. Since (laughs) we're already on a detour anyway, right? But it seems like the people who watch the most Westerns went out and elected the evil rancher who's trying to cut off their water rights and owns the sheriff. Right. I don't know why they did that. They've seen so many westerns. They should have known better. These are all black hats riding into town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should probably get back to comic books before people well, 
Press. We're, this has now become a classic podcast, right? Where you'll just go off on your uh, tangents. <laughs> but all, it kind of all feeds back in itself because, like, um, both the wrong earth and Captain Kid play with a lot of these ideas, also. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The wrong earth is, um, well, it's more of a comment on entertainment and comic books than on the real world. I mean, You've read comic books a long time. I've read comic books a long time. And there's a clear line of demarcation between what a superhero used to be and what a superhero is now. Mm -hmm. I tend to think the line gets drawn with uh, Wolverine. (laughs) But a lot of people look back to Dark Knight and Watchmen, obviously, but I think it was happening already. Where before, um, they were corny. And, you know, they... uh, Superheroes saluted the flag and <clears throat> helped the police and trusted authority. And Superman once said to President Kennedy, if you can't trust the president of the United States, who can you trust? And when he, when he uh, revealed the secret identity to him. And so you've got that old-fashioned kind of superhero. And then you've got the stick-it-to-the-man superhero who uh, lives in a corrupt world and and doesn't trust authority at all authority at all so and that's what we have today i don't see anybody saying i don't see too many superheroes saluting the flag these days now when you play with that in captain kid especially or rather in in, um wrong earth especially where the old-fashioned values just feel so completely out of place although the other the other heroes' values also are, are out of place, too. They feel almost too hostile. Yeah, they get trapped in each other's worlds. And um, so they're, they're in this, after, you know, years and years of fighting crime in their own ways, uh, they end up in a place where even the good guys don't share their values. And they're real fish out of water. It's like... It's like Dark Knight meets Batman 66 meets Howard the Duck, sort of. Huh. And um, they're trapped in a world they never made, you know. Yeah. uh, I always loved Steve Gerber's writing. It was a huge influence on me. But um, so there they are. And uh, they have to to learn to function on each other in places they hate to be in uh, that don't make sense to them. And I think they do okay. Right now we're doing a, we have a book called Dragonfly and Dragonfly Man, which is those two heroes before they swapped Earths, um, operating in their comfort zones. And uh, we sort of focus on how they dealt with their sidekicks, which we didn't really get to see in Wrong Earth. And um, Peter Krause is drawn that. And I think it's coming out pretty well. The, uh, Second issue is, I guess it's coming out this week. How do you draw the difference between the way they treat their sidekicks? Is there kind of a generational approach, the same way that you treat your kids in different generations? <laughs> Excuse me. The yeah. um, the gritty, uh, uh, grim Earth Omega hero, Dragonfly, treats his sidekick stinger as a soldier they're in a war so he's just got to follow orders and he's got to be disciplined and uh dragonfly man who's the campy one um educates his sidekick he wants his sidekick to learn and grow and become as much like him as possible so it's two very different approaches dragonfly man shares all the information he can and uh uh Dragonfly doles it out on a need-to-know basis, which his sidekick perfectly resents, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. As anyone would, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's got a real sort of military chain of command sensibility, where the other one is like, it's really more like father and son. It's got to be really interesting playing with a different dichotomy between the characters. It really is. It really is because I love comic books and I love old comic books and new ones and just to compare and contrast where we used to be and where we are now is uh, mm-hmm. it the exercise. It just never gets old for me. It just seems 
to always yield something new. Yeah, I think we may have the same approach to that, to comics, especially, you know, writing these histories. Um, mm-hmm. I get different perspectives reading comics from different eras. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's this feeling like because you know so much of the background behind them, you're reading not just what's on the page, but what's implied by the page yeah. and kind of evoking different eras in, in time, really. Yeah. It's not just the nostalgia, but uh, it's how it reflects the era in which it was created. Mm-hmm. So we were talking just a minute ago about the creation of Wolverine. Um, it's interesting because Wolverine, Punisher, and that really dark take on the Spectre all were in 1974, which, of course, is the year Nixon resigned and we started having the oil crisis. And there was just <laughs> this feeling in the country that the country was turning to hell. Um, and these characters really kind of reflected that. And it's interesting that they became, uh, especially Wolverine the Punisher, obviously, uh, became like these iconic characters who everybody knew. And they kind of captured the imagination in a way that very few other characters did. And it's almost right. as if the country took a turn in the wrong direction at that point. And then we just continue going down that road. It's also the, during the time that the uh, middle class started to become more and more eroded. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That was definitely starting to happen. And um, I mean, we've taken a lot of wrong turns over history. <laughs> uh, the characters that like Wolverine and the Punisher arrived in 74, but I don't think they really started having any impact until later under yeah. different leaders. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. We definitely got the raw material then, and there might have been something to it. Um, 74 was into, I mean, monsters were big in comics then. Right. And, uh, they had just liberalized the comics code so you could do a little more with vampires and stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, life always, I mean, you see, when you're little, when you're six years old, like the world is kind of perfect and stable and safe, if, uh-huh. uh, hopefully. And um, as you grow up, it does. See, I I think it seems to everyone that the world is declining. <laughs> uh-huh. It's just uh, declining as you age, and for you, it kind of is because you have to sort of start taking care of yourself. <laughs> and but. Uh, it, I mean, it definitely feels like decline to me, but I wonder if it would have felt like decline to me no matter when I was born. Yeah, that's a good question. Because in yeah. a lot of ways, we're, we're a better society than we were before. Um, yeah. You know, gender, race, sexuality um, is so much more advanced than before. And you touched on that a bit in um, High Heaven. Um, uh, but in other ways, uh, like, it feels like we're regressing. I guess that's the complexity of modern life. I mean, I think probably if you went to the generation when you were you were a kid, I think you're like 10, 12 years older than me, um, they were probably bemoaning that kids weren't the way they were in the 40s. And, you know, oh, when t- I was, and, and you know, it, it's the it's the way everyone's always looked at the world. So you're always seeing your past through some sort of false nostalgia. You know, it was uh, somebody who wrote a book. Was it Brett Easton Ellis? I was reading a review the other day. Um, he wrote a book called White, and it's his complaints about how uh, the left has turned into uh, 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 Nazis. You know, just uh, they're like doctrinaire, and you can't like say the wrong thing, and or they'll they'll uh, they'll obliterate you, right? Mm-hmm. And I was missing. I thought. This is exactly what Al Cap was saying 50 years ago. <laughs> I mean, it was precisely what he was saying. Yes. And because because Brett Easton Ellis is using new words like woke and stuff, people think that this is a modern problem, <laughs> but it's not. And by problem, I mean Brett Easton Ellis, not the stuff he's complaining about. Mm-hmm. It was identical to Al Cap's argument. So there's there's um there's so much we take to be new because the surface is different. That's really kind of eternal. Yeah. Well, I guess that's how, as a writer, you stay relevant because you're still, you're still writing about what's important, which is the basic humanity and the way we see the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope so. I try not to like, 
I try not to write anything that's going to seem like super old fashioned in three years because I'm writing about this generation of cell phone or something. Right. And um, I remembered Bob Dylan used to have this um, this uh, satellite radio show called uh, yep. uh, where he would have a theme every week and right. play around the theme. And I, I looked at a list of the themes once and it really struck me that every single theme, it was like dogs, divorce, baseball. Every single thing was something that people cared about a hundred years ago. They care about now and they'll care about in a hundred years. Huh. Yeah. And that's how he seemed to have chosen them. And I, and that really sort of, uh, gave me an idea, another idea about how to write. Um, That's, that's really interesting. (laughs) How'd that change your, how'd that affect your idea? You kind of just getting back to staying, paying attention to basic principles. Yeah, and, and not being too, uh, not not leaning in too hard to the sort of service details of whatever this year happens to be, mm-hmm. because they do date badly. Yeah, yeah, Jeez. and there's de- you know definitely reading a lot of '90s comics uh, showed me a lot of work that dated badly. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, it's just so so much that just feels of that era, and and um, has its own campy value for being, you know, super of that era. You know, there's a uh, there's an Avengers event called the Crossing, for example, that's got like the most '90s artwork possible, and it's got <laughs> these stupid redesigns of the Wasp, where they turn her into a wasp, and um, uh, random characters get killed, and they hype the the characters, and there's a hollow foil cover to one of the issues. And it's all like brilliantly awful. And it was all taken so seriously at the time. But it all feels like, you know, the most fashionable music or something. It feels like listening to In Vogue or something. It really does, doesn't it? And actually, well, I didn't think it was very good then. But it was probably because I was older. Uh, <laughs> right. 90s Marvels are their own kind of bad. They really are. <laughs> they came back, of course, with a lot of great material after that. But. Yeah, um, there, there's a special kind of of hilarious that um, you can find it in '90s Marvel. Mm. Yeah, you did a lot in the '90s. It was a busy era for you. That yeah, was uh, a busy for me. Yeah, um, you started. When did you start at DC? So you were part of the Vertigo launch. You were with Karen Berger before that, right? Right. I started in 1990. Um, as her assistant editor, and we were working on books that would become Vertigo books, and we were also working on Wonder Woman, um, which George Paris at that time was writing. He wasn't drawing it anymore. And uh, so we were working on Sandman and um, Hellblazer, Swamp Thing, and, and when I got there, we launched Shade the Changing Man. So it was really becoming a line of, of comics, and it wasn't until a couple years later that uh, the line got a brand, you know, Vertigo. But uh, so it was a heck of a place to start in comics. I mean, those those were all my favorite ones anyway. And uh, boy, those uh, writers and artists working on them were all so good. I learned a tremendous amount from them. Those are literally some of the best comics of the era. Yeah, I think some of the best comics ever. I think. I think it was a real sort of a, a classic era like EC in the 50s, really. There's a lot to the fact that most of those books have never gone out of print. Yep. What do you think made it? Was there something in the air, something about Karen's editing and your work with her? Or um, what do you think made it so memorable? Well, Karen was not a comic book fan. Um, she never read comics before she got a job. In, uh, as uh, I believe Paul Levitz's assistant. And um, she, so she didn't have that uh, DNA in her where she's just going to sort of do today's version of the stuff I read yesterday. There was no stuff she read yesterday. So uh, she drew from, well, when, when they, ha- it was just really lucky for the world when they handed her Swamp Thing to edit. 
um, after Alan Moore had been writing it and during Alan's run, because it was Karen who parlayed that into a line. When when Hellblazer spun out of of uh, Swamp Thing, then you had something. And uh, and that so you have Jamie Delano writing Hellblazer, and Jamie wasn't a comic book fan either. So they were able to bring perspectives and approaches that comics fans had never seen before because they weren't drawing from the same well as us. Much more of a novelistic sensibility. Yeah. Yeah, but still very visual. But very um, visual, yeah. Good at it. They were all really good at it. Pete Milligan, Grant Morrison. I mean, what a what a bench, you know, what a lineup of, of creators. I was just rereading Early Shade not too long ago, and those books really stand up. Yeah. Bachelor uh, Art's fantastic, of course. Oh, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. I haven't read Shade in a while. I should go back to it sometime. But I'm a little secret. afraid to go back and reread Sandman because it became so culturally relevant. Yeah. I almost, I almost wonder if it's going to stand up in the way I'd like it to. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't read it in a long time either. It's a good question. Um, so what did, what part did you play in that, did, if any, in the like developmental editing of uh, some of these, some of the titles? Do you work a lot with the creators to, to help them kind of birth their ideas? Um, sometimes, sometimes. I think Vertigo would have happened pretty much the way it happened already if I'd never been born. <laughs> okay. But the, uh, you know, I would... Um, when I was Karen's assistant, I would I would talk to the creators on the phone a lot. Sometimes we would talk over their stories. Um, I'd listen. Sometimes I had some advice. Uh, I would do a lot of just, you know, keeping the wheels turning, get the pages ballooned, get them out to the letterer, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, uh, it was a great job. I loved it. And then I became an editor, and they handed me my favorite comic book, which was Grant and Richard Case's Doom Patrol. Ah, uh, yeah. And that was crazy to, to, like, I felt like the luckiest kid in the world. That was a revolutionary comic. It really was. And it was so entertaining on top mm -hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so funny. Well, that's the thing is like it, people kind of think of it as this abstract, you know, intense, surrealistic book. But everything from the Brotherhood of Dada to the Doom Force special were just so just silly. Yeah. Yeah. When Grant, Grant has Grant is a hilariously funny person. And um, uh, I think most of the best. Drama and sort of uh, weighty, dark stuff even, um, is funny too. Mm -hmm. like, like if you go back and look at The Sopranos, which was a great show, it was funnier than a sitcom could ever be. There was always somebody on that show making you laugh, and it was in this context of such gravity that, A, you really needed it, and B, it really seemed a lot more like life, because life isn't all dark. It's funny, too, you know? Right, right. And so, also, like, by having the comedy makes the drama more intense. Yeah, it really does. It, they really help each other out in a huge way. So, um, I mean, you even see that, like, now in the Watchmen TV show. There, there's the moments when you can breathe in between the amazing dramatic scenes. Oh, cool. I haven't watched Watchmen yet. Um, yeah, like like you, I well, probably like you. I've read that book, you know, a dozen times in my life. Um, yeah. And I've been impressed and amazed by how much they build upon it and make a whole coherent, smart world that fits Alan Moore's vision, but also becomes another thing in and of mm -hmm. itself. Um and it's just a tremendously well done. The acting is is fantastic. And the way they unfold the plot just feels very right on to me. Good. Good. I'm I'm hearing nothing but good things. My policy has been to wait until the season ends to see if everyone's angry before <laughs> I start watching it. Certain yep. shows to do that with. <laughs> Tonight is episode eight. So uh 
So they have so, three more to make you angry, right? You'll have something to to keep you busy over the holidays. Yeah. Uh, back to Vertigo. Is there any like underrated series or series that you think has been forgotten that you, that you would love to have people check out from that time? Well, I think Shade the Changing Man is underrated, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's a great series. Um. Uh, that would be the that would be my choice for series I wish more people checked out. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Any things that you worked on there that didn't quite turn out the way you wanted them to, where maybe the core idea was good, but it just didn't play off as well as you hoped? <clears throat> Sorry, I keep having to clear my throat there. It's all right. The um Yes, the answer to that question is yes, but it wouldn't be fair for me to talk about it because then you would know who I was talking about. Okay. Okay. Because, yeah, I was, um, I got to say for myself, like going back and rereading a series like uh, Kid Eternity is a, is a good choice or Black Orchid's another, where it seemed to have all the potential in the world and just didn't quite ever pay off. And uh, you could see the classic elements kind of coming out of it. Um, mm -hmm. But they didn't quite become what they should have become, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's fair, probably. The thing is, like, in 93, it's the most amazing stat from the book. Uh, there were something like 38 different new publishers or imprints created just that year alone. Wow. From the Ultraverse, Ultraverse to Milestone to um, Ripoff Press had three different lines they created. Marvel had the Clive Barker universe. Uh, Marvel Epic um, had two different lines at that point. And the only one that lasted was Vertigo. Wow. That's really interesting. I never knew that. And didn't, <clears throat> didn't the market kind of crash in 94? Yeah, exactly. And, it, and there's a stat <clears throat> that I found in an old issue of Comics Retailer Magazine that basically shows a the market peaked um, at the return of Superman in uh, early 93, and then it's almost a complete 45-degree angle down through the end of the decade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did zero hour as uh, the perfect jumping on point, and I think it turned out to be the perfect jumping off point. Well, that ended up being a pretty controversial book. Yeah. I think the motivations were strong, but... In retrospect, do you think uh, maybe you overstepped a little bit? With the zero-hour books? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't involved in them. I wrote... Uh, okay. I wrote, I think, Legion 94 zero-hour comic, right? Yeah. And, uh, that was, I think, my only... The only time it overlapped with me. You're right. Yeah, I didn't have that in my notes either. Because uh, I think it was Mark Wade. Who, no, it wasn't Mark Wade. It was Dan Jurgens who wrote that, of course. Yeah, in fact, touched that, on it in um, Our Man. Right. That's did, no, no. That was a later one. Our Man was later in the decade, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. I mean, you you kind of call back to it in Our Man when you were talking about um, Rex. Let's talk about Our Man because obviously that was a, a okay. one of your favorite works. I love how I found a quote from you that said it was um, the DC's worst selling and least critically acclaimed book. Neither of which I think is probably true. Um, but, uh, you know, it's obviously something you put a lot of passion into. I loved, I loved that book. Um, I loved everything about it. It really felt like all the creators and editors and everybody was just rowing completely in the same direction, which, um, is rare, more rare than you might think. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it was, it was just such a good experience and I'm, I was such a fan of Grant's, and he sort of handed me this character. And uh, to be able to develop that character based on his notes and stuff uh, was right where I wanted to be, because I thought he was like bringing us to the next level of comics at that point. And um, I was able to just put a lot of my own self into it, and uh, a lot of my own thoughts and ideas and opinions and observations and stuff. And it, it seemed to work really well. And uh, Tony Bedard, the editor, really fought for us. That book would have, it lasted two years, and I think it would have 
gone away a lot quicker, if not for Tony, because it never sold that well. It was one of those under the radar kind of books. Yep. Yeah. Everybody's reading goddamn Starman when they should be reading Our Man, is basically <laughs> my definition of that era. <laughs> Starman is the book for the late 90s, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy your Starman. Uh, no i i think our man really stands up um you gave us a good perspective character with snapper you gave us a strong female character with bethany Mm -hmm. and the star man himself the innocent in society was a great lead and then the the stories were kind of mind-bending thanks thanks i uh that uh those issues are now available on Comixology and the DC Universe app, too, if anybody wants to read them. Um, that's the first time they've been made available since they were new. So that's great. That's why I'm so happy to have the DC Universe app. I love the DC Universe app. It's fun. I love reading comic books on my TV. I never do that. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, <clears throat> and... All those old, you know, the Doom Patrol show I loved. This is so um, perfect to Grant's vision. It really was. It really was. And it was funny. They're literally taken right out of it. Really, it really was. I mean, I never thought I'd see the Beard Hunter on television. Right? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it's nice to be able to watch an old Superman or Wonder Woman whenever you want to. So I love that app. I've become hooked to the new shows that come on every time. I think the Harley Quinn cartoon is hysterical. I'll have to check that out. The only one I've really checked out is Doom Patrol. Um, I was a little disappointed in Titans. Yeah. Uh, it, it has a lot had a lot of potential, but the storylines never quite pay off. Yeah. I think I've heard that. Yeah, it's, I think I watched the first one, and it just wasn't a show for me. I mean, fuck Batman was funny. But. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, was there anything you wanted to pay off in Our Man or any storylines you would have gotten to if you'd had more than two years? No, the, um, like I said, Tony Bedard really, really uh, took care of us very well. And we got enough notice on the cancellation that I was able to wrap the story up the way I always thought I would. Um, I always had an ending in mind, and the one you saw is the ending I had in mind. Okay. So if it had gone for 60 issues, it still would have had the same ending, unless I changed my mind. That's a luxury for a writer. It really made writing it a lot easier and less fraught and less nerve-wracking to know where, what general direction I was heading in that way. Um, I recommend having an ending in mind. Yeah. Well, especially now, I think people expect an ending to, especially the creator-driven series. Yeah. Which I would call that. Um, I guess the series that you worked on at that time that didn't have an ending as such was Legion. Right, right. Um, That's also well thought of. How do you look back on that work? It was fun. I really enjoyed the characters. I really enjoyed uh, the fans. Um, even though I don't, maybe only half of them enjoyed me. (laughs) Uh, That's the curse of Legion fandom, right? It's the curse of Legion fandom. They're they're so devoted. Uh, I really, really loved that time dealing with them. We were just starting like in AOL chat rooms and stuff back then. And so I had a lot of contact with some fans anyway maybe it was a small number but whoever would come to the legion of superheroes chat room every week and there was a nice to go on usenet too and and talk to them right i remember usenet yeah yeah so that i i was on that book for like five years and it was a really good five years any storylines or characters that are special favorites of yours from that? I always loved writing Brady Yank 5 because my approach to him was 
he is really, really smart, but sometimes brains are not enough. Like you need other qual good qualities as well. Right. And uh, so he would always sort of like step in it because he never developed other good qualities. Um, I really liked him. And uh, the storylines in particular, uh, let's see, in the beginning we did a, we did a story that showed uh, the origin of Triad, who was Triplicate Girl, mm -hmm. that, I, that I enjoyed, really enjoyed working on. Um, I liked it when they came to the 20th century. I know the readers didn't, but I, I maybe they did. <laughs> When they came to the 20th century and hung around with Superman and stuff, I enjoyed writing those. That's well, a classic Legion trope, but every, I think the fans are always of two minds about it. Yeah. Well, most fans grew up, in, <clears throat> when they grew up reading Legion, Legion was in the future. But I'm so old. All the, all the early stories I remember are Legion being from the future and being in mm -hmm. our time. So I wanted to do that. Yeah, there's some classic shooter stories where they come back in time. Um, oh, yeah. They're like um, some, of the, the, some of the best Legion stories ever. I love the, the Mordry story. Yeah. So, um, but even before that, like before they had their own series at all, they would show up in Supergirl or Superboy stories. Oh, right, yeah. Do things in, you know, whatever the contemporary time was. You, yeah. And so I bet for you, part of it's the tie to Superman, since you talked about your love for the character being so strong. Yeah, I love, I love that they were a Superman spinoff, and I was writing them, basically. So I got to ask you about your the proposal you worked on with uh, Mark Wade, Mark Millar, <clears throat> Grant Morrison for Superman. Uh, that was probably the most interesting. Uh, thing I stumbled over as part of prepping for this. It's a fascinating uh, pitch you put together for it. Well, there was one huge mistake in that proposal, and that was putting my name on it because I didn't do, I didn't contribute a thing to it. Oh, really? I didn't finger. Oh. Uh, they just put my name on it out of kindness. At some point, we were, you know, we were excited about all, again, rowing in the same direction. And we all sort of had this vision of what comics, superhero comics ought to be that overlapped. And we would talk about like getting a big house somewhere and we'd all live in it and write comics all the time, you know? And uh, so we were just thinking of this ourselves as kind of a little gang. And that's why they put my name on the thing, but I didn't earn it or deserve it at all. You didn't work on the, the conception? It was the other guys? Those, it was all those guys. It was okay. all those guys. I wasn't in on... I don't think I had a single contribution in that. Wow, okay. Yeah. So you picked the wrong guy. You, you, <laughs> you, just, you just bought a losing lottery ticket, if that's what you want to talk about. You well, it's yet another reason for me to talk to Grant Morrison, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Such an interest. Okay, well then... Uh, here's someone that something that probably no one would ever ask you about, which is your work on the reboot of Magnus Robot Fighter. No one ever asked that. was fun. I enjoyed that. Um, Madeline Robbins was the editor. I really enjoyed working with her. Mike McCone drawing it. Uh, he's a fabulous artist. He's one of the best artists I ever got to work with. Um, and we had this uh, terrific underutilized character from the 60s whose his defining quality was he hated robots. And um, I got to be kind of funny with that. I liked, I liked uh, having these brutal panels where he'd like rip a robot's innards apart and oil would gush out like blood. Yeah. And um, I liked, we got to do this one where um, uh, he went to Disney World and fought all the audio animatronic presidents. Right, yes. And uh, that was probably my favorite moment of that. 
Imagine how much more more fun I would be doing that today. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I could think of a couple you'd probably enjoy uh, having that now. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, you know that's that's. Um, I never directly addressed that in any of my Ahoy comics work because, again, I I try to stay away from what's ephemeral. Yeah. Um, it would be like reading a comic book about Bush or Obama now. It wouldn't be that interesting, would it? I guess. But like when you think of like the Secret Empire story and Captain America, yeah, that's true. That you know, it's pretty... Nixon makes it more powerful. I think it does make it better. That's true. That's true. That's the counter argument right there. I mean, sometimes you're able to do something that does stand up. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I think about what this era is going to feel like 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And part of me thinks see, people are going to look at it as like a strange aberration in American history. But I also think people are going to be fascinated by it just because it's so odd. Mm-hmm. So like our daily news is just so overwhelmingly strange compared to any other era in history that I I wonder if there's going to be this strange nostalgic fascination with that there Maybe might be nostalgic isn't the right word but there might be maybe there'll be maybe in 40 years there'll be a lot of young people who are pissed off because the old people are still talking about trump all the time right who knows <laughs> um but that presumes we're going to go back to normal which i don't think is guaranteed yet <laughs> No, that's true too. Yeah. Of course, there were you know militias during uh, Clinton's presidency. So, you know, what yeah. is normal? What is normal? Right. Yeah. Yeah. What is normal? There is no normal. Yeah, it's kind of the world's always been messed up, right? Really has. We were sheltered from it for a very long time, weren't we? Yeah. Well, I mean. You know, I'm Jewish. I mean, I can. My people have been tortured through the centuries. Yeah, I was more sheltered than you were then. Yeah, yeah. We had those debates around the table on Thanksgiving. You know, about the nature of uh, of uh, virtue, and my mom for years refused to even travel to Germany under the idea that you know what the the uh, people could never be reformed. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah uh, but anyway, we're going off on a kind of dark direction here. Very dark turn. Yeah. <laughs> which is maybe a good transition to talking about high heaven. Oh, cool. Cool. Because uh, I, I can tell that's a very, I, I don't want to read into it, but it feels personal to me, kind of a philosophical exploration of the world. Well, thanks. It's about, it's really more about, I haven't about a uh, guy who dies uh, in a funny way, I hope, and um, wakes up in heaven, and he gets in there, and the lodgings are bad, and the food is bad, and the people are all unfriendly, and he's in heaven forever, and what can he do? It's just the worst place. And um, on the surface, I think that book seems to be about religious philosophy and stuff but i was really trying to write about austerity and just how um how uh much better we deserve than what we've been getting (laughs) although i express it through a character who doesn't really seem to deserve that much (laughs) no he is pretty unlikable he is pretty unlikable he is pretty unlikable you remind me of a few of the Hollywood people I've talked to over the years who just seem very self-involved. He's extremely self-centered. He can't, and uh, he turns people off immediately. He's got like negative charisma. <laughs> uh, why austerity? Where, where do you, where does that feed into the storyline? Well, because he goes to heaven, and heaven is like he's living in a. Uh, like public housing high rise and he's eating food out of vending machines. It's terrible food. And uh, uh, 
he's got nothing to do but indulge his appetites, but there's nothing good there. <laughs> Everything is cheap, <laughs> austere, you know. And it's it, part of it is a little tantrum for me about having to live in an age where um, spending public money in the public interest is seen as immoral. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the post office is worse and trains are worse. And um, uh, it seems like everything that the public shares is worse and worse and worse. And Europe went through that a lot worse than we have. But right. Yeah. Something I particularly resent. Yeah. My yeah. British friends complained about that for a good five years. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. And uh, it's still, it's not, I wouldn't say it's on the decline here. No. It's starting to be on the decline in Europe. But, um, but one of the things I, I thought was really intriguing about the world you create in I Heaven is that there is a separate heaven for the 1%. There is. There is. And um, because basically what happened was, well, I hope I'm not giving too much away. But it's really. Your choice, Tom. My choice, but basically, it's decided that they're going to let more people into heaven because fewer people are sort of getting in the old-fashioned way by scrupulously adhering to um, a set of moral rules like, like, uh, like the sanction against premarital sex, for instance. Fewer people are adhering to this stuff, so numbers are down. So they've got yeah. to figure out ways to get more people into heaven. So they start accepting more mediocre people. And um, they, there is a, a feeling in heaven that the mediocre purple people don't deserve paradise. So they, they create a mediocre heaven for them. So it's, it, it's, uh, it's about class, too. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's... Uh, so we, we're going to do one more series of High Heaven. It has just the best art by Greg Scott and colorist Andy Troy. We're doing one more series, another five issues. And then I think Greg and I are going to move on to something else. It, it, the art is just perfect for it. I was thinking of the scene where he looks out and he sees this enormous kind of endless field of public housing projects. Mm -hmm. And then he goes into one, and there's the vending machines. You could send, feel the dirt on the street or on the on the floors of the buildings. Yeah, yeah. The, you almost see the dust coming off of the vending machines. He's such uh, a great artist. Yeah. I hadn't picked that up before I I started prepping for this, but it really is like a a gem of a series. Um, something the, the kind of an interesting philosophical approach to the world. Um, I'm glad you're going to be able to pay off some of the themes. Yeah, so it's it's the one book I've worked on. It's the one book I've written. It's not. It doesn't refer to comics in any way, really. It's just a comedy about an asshole who goes to heaven. Uh huh. Um, if you've never read a comic book you might be able to get into this um, so I'd like to do a little more in that regard some more things that don't have a pulp element or a science fiction element or a superhero element but uh, you got to get the right idea <laughs> yeah well that's the that's the hard part about working that kind of lifestyle right uh, so you're working as an editor-in-chief at, at Ahoy, so you probably get a, a lot of interesting ideas coming through the company. Um, yeah. it, it's, been a, it's been a great launch, I think, in that like the work is all solid, professional, and it kind of has the subtle theme of being just a little, uh, being smart and satirical, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's right. Thank you. That's exactly what we're trying to put across. Um, it's been a terrific launch and we've been very, very lucky. Um, we've gotten a lot of interest and a lot of attention. And uh, we have a publicist, David Hyde, who uh, has done tremendous work getting us known, getting our name out there. Um, we were lucky to get Second Coming, 
which is uh, a book that Vertigo was going to publish. And then they weren't going to publish it. And it's by Mark Russell and Richard Pace and Leonard Kirk. And it's about a um, Jesus Christ returning to Earth and becoming sort of odd couple roommates with a Superman type character. And uh, it's a very funny, thoughtful book. And it's got a lot of attention and, and it sells very well for us. So Another just great Mark Russell book. Another great Mark Russell book. And we've right got another with Flintstones and Prez. Yeah, yeah. And we have another great Mark Russell book coming up in the spring called Billionaire Island about a sort of libertarian paradise for billionaires. And um, he puts so much thought into his work and he he fills it with so many real ideas, a lot of ideas you just haven't encountered before, haven't thought of before, but he still somehow makes it so easy and fun to read that uh, that's, to me, that's a Mark Russell story. Really thoughtful, really easy, you know. And, it's uh, an amazing a balancing act. It really is. It really is. He works hard. And uh, he's in demand. And working all the time. And I hope he gets the, just a chance to slow down for the holidays. So what else do you have coming out in 2020 that you're excited about? We also ha oh, we also have um, by the way, Billionaire Island is drawn by Steve Pugh, who was his oh. Flintstone collaborator. Great. Steve is great. I love him. I worked on I worked with him on some Vertigo stuff years ago. Um, we also have uh, Ash and Thorn, which is written by Mariah McCourt and drawn by Sue Lee, with covers by Jill T Thompson, and that's about a. Uh, D dimensional monstrosity menace that's going to invade and infect the earth but uh and the uh, our only line of defense are um a magician who's an elderly woman and her new apprentice who's also an elderly woman mm. it's two elderly women versus monsters and it's wonderful well, that sounds different yeah, it really is. It really is. We try to, we really try to put out comics that nobody else is putting out, you know. And in that case, we really, we really made it. Um, we're, Captain Ginger is coming back. That's uh, Stuart Moore and June Brigman about the uh, starships that, uh, with a crew of cats. Uh, it's something I love. I just and talked to Stuart yesterday, in fact. Is did it? you? Did yeah. you interview him? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, great. Great. He's one of yeah. my favorites. Good time. Yeah. Yeah. Great we things started... to say about working for you guys also. We met at Vertigo. That's how I we think, know yeah, I was going to say, you guys have probably known each other close to 30 years. Close to 30 years is right. He's And he's great. Um, one of the best things about working at Ahoy is to be teamed up with Stuart again. Um, we also have uh, another bit of nonsense by me. It's called Penultiman, and it's about a um, superhero who is very, very powerful and very highly regarded and adored and admired and charismatic, and who um, secretly hates himself. And it's about sort of... Uh, his neurotic journey. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> See, I always wonder, these heroes all seem very confident on the outside, but yeah. are they really that confident? What happens if you're not? Okay, I guess that's a Peter Parker idea, but I, I always want to see that carried to the next level. He, he has a robot assistant who's trying to fix him, but he's going to prove difficult to fix. So it sounds like you're having a good time with this work. Yeah, I'm having a good time with this work. That's this is my favorite time of my whole career. I get to uh, write as much as I want of what I want, and um, maybe 
people will even read some of it. And uh, <laughs> working with some terrific artists. And uh, and I missed editing. I hadn't edited anything in like 25 years. I had no idea how much I missed it, but I loved dealing with writers and artists and and uh, fans and from that from that vantage point very much what do you miss about it what did you realize you missed about i should say um it's more social than writing is yeah you're you're dealing with people actually now that uh see when i was an editor at vertigo my desk had a typewriter and an ashtray i mean it was that long ago mm -hmm. but now um Everyone works remotely. Um, so I used to love to go into the office and hang out all morning with all the editors. And then we'd have to stay late because we wasted the morning, you know. Right. It was great. It was great. Now editing is uh, almost as solitary as writing because everyone's, I'm in an office by myself, basically. But you're still, you know, through email and telephones and stuff, you're still constantly dealing with people. So that's, that's, I like that about it. I like um, having input on work that somebody else has to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I try to, have, I try to be very, I try to have a very light touch in that regard. I mean, creative people are creative and my philosophy is to let them create, but um, sometimes they like a sounding board. And right. I, I like doing that. I like getting kind of involved in a story and then not having to write it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, uh, from my perspective, I don't think I would have been able to really complete my books to the level they needed to be done without an editor. Um, yeah. just having, just having a third party, just to make sure I'm, you know, following my, that my, I'm not repeating words and junk like that, as well as like making sure I've got themes that are playing through, um, cause you get kind of story blind after a while. You, an editor is really, there are a hundred thousand small ways you can sort of make a fool of yourself when you're writing and your editor uh if your editor is preventing you from doing that you have a good editor right that's the first job the first job isn't to like you know think of a story for them which a lot of editors would do that's the worst way to approach the job i think the first job is to keep them from like uh showing up in public with their pants down mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, prevent them from making that big mistake. Well, we're yeah. a long, long ways away from the era of Julius Schwartz or more wise <laughs> uh, creating from a cover idea. Right, right, right. Well, that was fun. That was it was nice. It's nice to go back and see that exercise and how they handle it. Um, are you a big Silver Age Superman guy at all? Uh, a bit. It's not my favorite Silver Age work, but I've read a good amount of it. There's a Jimmy Olsen annual toward the end where um, they actually added a new cover scene to a reprint and they had to fill it out, the reprint out with extra pages to, oh. Um, oh. to fill out the cover scene. Because I guess they just, I don't know why they would go to this much trouble, but I guess they just thought nothing in the book had a strong enough cover image. So they actually, <clears throat> I forget what it is almost. It's like they're, Jimmy is taking a picture of Superman, I guess that reveals his secret identity or something. And so Pete Costanza goes in and draws extra pages to this Kurt Swan story. It's the oh. wildest thing I ever saw. Now I got to look this up. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I'll look it up for you. I don't know what it is. Okay. Now you got me really curious. That sounds like totally the kind of thing I go crazy for. Oh, it's great. It's great. I'm going to find it. Did you ever go to, do you ever go to Mike's amazing world of comics? Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't have done my, I couldn't have done the nineties book without it. I know it is the best site. And I'm looking up that Jimmy Olsen issue for you right now. 
on com I'm on comics.org and um, yeah, another favorite site. Yep. I always get stuck on the Kirby issues of Jimmy Olsen though. Stuck on them in what way? I just love them so much. They're my favorite crazy old comics. Great. Are they not? I think I have a letter from them. The Don Rickles issues are, are like literally some of my favorite books from that time. Just because they're so freaking random. It's um, Jimmy Olsen 113. Okay. Giant. And on the cover, there's this Ross Andrew picture of Superman. Clark is opening his shirt to reveal his Superman symbol. And Jimmy is taking a picture of like popping out of nowhere to get his picture. It's called The Betrayal of Superman. Shock-filled anti-Superman issue. It is a shock-filled anti-Superman issue. So how how can that be the story that they were afraid of, like, not having a story when they also have the king of the giant ants as Jimmy riding an ant with kryptonite in its beak? It doesn't make any sense. You're right. You're right. There's <laughs> nothing like better than that ant. Jimmy writing a <laughs> and then they have the super brain of Jimmy Olsen, where he's got he's like a smart person from the future, and he's shooting rays from his brain. <laughs> Which, by the way, is an idea you played with in uh, hashtag Danger. That's right. That's right. In, the, yeah. the, the future giant brain, uh, such a great yeah. Silver Age trope. Yeah, that was one thing I got from our current president was when Desi became a smart person from the future. <clears throat> she learned that all, she knew all of a sudden she knew all this stuff, but she assumed that all the stuff she learned wasn't stuff that other people knew already. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like cert, a certain type of person can learn something and think they're the only one who knows it. And, so she kept going around bragging about this knowledge, but the stuff she would choose was stuff everybody knew already. <laughs> that she just never paid any attention to, right? She didn't pay attention to it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Randy Elliott... Prime the pump? Prime the pump, isn't that clever? I think I made that up. Right, exactly. Favorite Trumpism ever, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good one. Although he's... <laughs> His ruminations on toilets the other day was awfully good. <laughs> People got to flush 11 or 12 times now. What? What the I, hell are you talking about? I think he told us more than he intended to with that. Thank you. Anything else you want to mention? Let's Anything see. Anything coming up or that you want to plug that we haven't talked about? I think I've pretty much uh, filled you in most everything coming up. We still have a couple issues left to go in this run of Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Terror, um, which is our funny anthology, hopefully funny anthology series where we mock the memory of Edgar Allan Poe by doing violence to his stories. <laughs> and we got a wonderful story coming up that's written and drawn by Carol Lay, who's one of my favorites. And uh, we've got a Paul Cornell story coming up. Doctor Who fans will know that name more yeah. than else. And um, we have good things coming. Oh, thank you.